This audio is brought to you by muslimcentral.com. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. A'udhu billahi s-salamu alayhi wa minash shaytan al-rajim. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wa'udhuwan ila ala al-zalimeen. Wal-aqibatu lil-mutsaqeen. Allahumma salli wa sallam wa barak ala abdika wa rasulika Muhammadin sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam tasliman kathira. So tonight inshaAllah ta'ala we're going to continue with probably one of the most epic people that we will cover in the history of Islam. Uh, a man by the name of Ubadat ibn Samit radiallahu ta'ala anhu. But before we talk about Ubadah, just to situate him inshaAllah ta'ala in what we have been speaking about. We've been speaking about more or less the family of Anas ibn Malik radiallahu anhu. Khadimu Rasulillah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And we started off with Umm Sulaim, the mother, and Abu Talha, the stepfather, Anas. And then we covered the aunts and the uncles. So we went to Umm Haram bint Milhan, uh, the aunt. And of course, we mentioned when we showed on the chart that all of you should have memorized by now, uh, you know, the, the relationship that the husband of Umm Haram bint Milhan, the second husband is Ubadat ibn Samit radiallahu ta'ala anhu because Umm Haram radiallahu anha lost her husband and her son in the Battle of Uhud. They were both martyred in the Battle of Uhud as well as her younger brother, Haram ibn Milhan, who was martyred uh, in Bir Ma'una. So she lost everyone that was close to her and this is the man that would come forth to marry her. And so Ubadah radiallahu anhu becomes the uncle-in-law of Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu, the brother-in-law of Umm Sulaim radiallahu anha and fits into this beautiful family tree that we are covering uh, today insha'Allah ta'ala. Now there is one more person that's left in the family of Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu and that is going to be Al-Bara ibn Malik radiallahu anhu, who we'll cover next week insha'Allah ta'ala. And then we will pause for the month of July insha'Allah ta'ala. So we're gonna cover next week Al-Bara ibn Malik and then we'll pause for the month of July. Obviously we have the Hijjah and then we'll go into insha'Allah ta'ala. At that point we would have covered 80 episodes. We'll move on into 81 insha'Allah in August. So. Before I get started, if I can remind everyone, mashallah, we have a lot of young children here. Uh, they must have come with somebody, so they're all welcome, and we love to have them here, but please make sure they're not running around. It's dangerous because of the equipment and obviously can be distracting, inshallah. So uh, we have the mommy and me room and the daddy and me room. Please do make sure that your children, your younger children are with you, inshallah ta'ala, and don't look around at them and act like they're not yours, okay? I see some of you are like, I don't know who they are. You all know who your children are, inshallah ta'ala. So please keep your children with you. We don't want the camera falling on top of them. Um, we'll have to have you sign liability forms otherwise. All right. So, Ubadat ibn Samit radiallahu anhu. Who is Ubadat ibn Samit? First and foremost, Ubadat ibn Samit ibn Qais. His father is a Samit. His mother is a woman by the name of Qurratul Ain. Qurratul Ain. And he was considered a leader from the sub-tribe of Khazraj. We talked about these two tribes that came to the city of Yathrib and that settled the city of Yathrib. 
before Islam. And those two tribes that make up the Ansar are Aus and Khazraj. Uh, he is considered one of the leaders of the tribe of Khazraj. His father was one of the leaders of the tribe of Al Khazraj and he passed away as well in the previous wars and battles that took place. So Ubada assumes a leadership position right away. And so that's why we're going to find him amongst those early Muslims that were there in Mecca and that met the Prophet in Hajj. Ubadah is considered of the class of those leaders from the Ansar who we have covered. We've covered Asad ibn Zurara, we talked about Sa'ad ibn Ubadah, we talked about Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh. Uh, we talked about those leaders, that class of leaders. He's considered amongst them. And he is amongst the very first people from Medina to embrace Islam. If you remember, there were two bay'atul aqabas. There are two pledges that were taken from the people of Medina to the Prophet You had the first pledge with a smaller group of people, this tiny group of men, which is ironically called bay'atul nisa, the pledge of women. I'll see if anyone knows why it was called that in a minute, inshallah. So that's the first pledge, bay'atul nisa, 12 men that take this pledge with the Prophet they go back to Medina with Mus'ab radiallahu anhu. Mus'ab teaches people Islam, they spread Islam throughout Medina, then they come back to the Prophet as a larger group the next year in Hajj, over 70, and they take the full bay'ah with the Prophet one year later. So he's from those people who actually takes both bay'ahs with the Prophet And something I didn't mention early on was that, you know, we, we talked about the turmoil that existed in Yathrib, that existed in the city, from Bu'ath, from the war that just took place that killed off so many of the seniors. And that actually is what many historians say, the reason why you had this small group of leaders that were in Mecca looking for some sort of guidance or inspiration or way out of this madness that they were in. So it's actually very interesting. They didn't exactly know why they were there. Remember, there was an aura of mysticism and religion that surrounded Mecca. It wasn't Tawheed, it wasn't monotheism, but this idea that Mecca was a place and Hajj was some sort of a religious pilgrimage where we can seek inspiration from the idols and the overall environment and we can come to some place of good. So Ubadah is in that group of people who took that pledge uh, with the Prophet Why was it called Bay'atul Nisa? Because the Arabs called a pledge that did not involve a military component, a Bay'ah, Bay'atul Nisa. That's what they used to call it, okay? It did not require a military component at the time because obviously the men were the ones that would fight in battle, right? So that's why they called it Bay'atul Nisa. The second one was the larger Bay'ah, which was that they took in the Prophet and pledged to defend the Prophet as well. So Ubadah was present in both of those. Now, Ubadah radiallahu ta'ala anhu, um, all of his siblings would become Muslim after him. His first wife, uh, Jamila bint Abi Sa'asa'a, became Muslim because of him. So all of his siblings, as well as his wife, became Muslim through him. Uh, and he had a son as well through his first wife, Al-Walid ibn Ubadah, who went on to become one of his students and a narrator of hadith as well. So all of his siblings become Muslim through him. His wife, his child embraced Islam as well. Ubadah radiallahu anhu is described with being you know, a person of prominent qualities. So I'm going to actually read the description. عظيم الهامة كث الشعر شديد الهيبة يملأ عين رائيه رهبة وروعة. This is his description in Arabic. So who is he? He was a man from Yemen, very tall, 
He was uh, exceedingly black, and this is going to come into play with a racist encounter, a, prominent, a, a very famous racist encounter he has later on, so he was exceedingly black. But he wasn't from Abyssinia, he was from the black Yemenis. So there were people from Yemen that were uh, not from uh, Habasha, they were distinguished in not being from Abyssinia, but being from Yemen. But he had exceedingly black skin. He had uh, a prominent height, uh, prominent features. So they said everything about him was prominent. His forehead, his hair, his nose, his eyes, everything about him was prominent and was, was, was beautiful, exceedingly handsome. But at the same time, it's interesting because they said, that when he walked into a room, whoever looked at him was overtaken by both admiration and fear, right? So he had an imposing presence when he walked into a room. And that's part of his leadership, right? That he was a chief. Everyone immediately yielded the room to him. That's how imposing the appearance he, he had was. Praised for his beauty, praised for his eloquence, praised for his knowledge, praised for his wisdom, praised for the person. He was, he was praised as a person that would negotiate truces before Islam and after Islam. He was the person that would negotiate truces and that everyone could come to the table uh, through. He accompanied the Prophet in every battle. So he is Badri, he's from the people of Badr, which is of course a noble quality in and of itself. He's also one of those the Prophet entrusted to write the revelation, Kutab al-Wahi. So he's one of those that wrote the Qur'an as it was revealed. Uh, he's also one of the few Hufad, and we'll talk about this, someone who actually memorized the entirety of the Qur'an in the time of the Prophet Okay, so he memorized its entirety and we'll talk about how rare that was, at least from the prominent leaders of the Ansar at the time of the Prophet So let's kind of go through his life with the Prophet through his eyes. So he narrates the pledge that he had with the Prophet and he was one of the original group and then he was one of the 12 nuqaba, one of the 12 leaders that were appointed for Medina from the Prophet So he narrates and Al-Bukhari, uh, uh, of course, has this narration. It's one of the first narrations of Sahih Al-Bukhari. That Ubadat ibn Samit, and he was one of those who attended the Battle of Badr, and he is one of those who was appointed as a leader on the night of Al-Aqaba. it's a long hadith. It's present in multiple places in Sahih al-Bukhari. He said that we took a pledge with the Prophet upon 12 things. Number one, that we would not join anything in worship alongside Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I don't want to make the parents uncomfortable, please, inshallah ta'ala, if it's possible. Jazakumullah khair. <laughs> if someone can help, help her, inshallah ta'ala. You got it? All right, jazakumullah khair. 
So he said, we took allegiance with the Prophet ﷺ over 12 things. Or not over 12 things, over 6 things. Number one, that we would not join in worship anyone besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with Allah. So we worship Allah alone. That we would not steal. That we would not commit illegal uh, or, or engage in any illegal uh, sexual behavior. That we would not kill our children that we would not accuse an innocent person, meaning we would do away with slander, and that we would not disobey when ordered to do a good deed. So this is really beautiful because it shows you the moral foundation of Islam being given to a people to take back to Medina. This is before fiqh, right? Before jurisprudence and before the prayers become defined and the laws become defined. This is your pledge. This is what I want you to go back to Medina with. You're not gonna worship anyone besides Allah. You're not gonna steal anymore. You're not going to commit zina. You're not going to accuse people or gossip or slander. You are not going to, uh, to, to be disobedient when ordered to do a good deed. And you're not going to kill your children because imagine, because imagine that was, of course, a prominent feature of those societies at the time. The Prophet said, whoever does this will be rewarded by Allah. And whoever does any of the above and is punished in this world for it, then that punishment will be an expiation for that sin. Meaning if you commit one of those things, those major sins, you'll, you're punished for it in this life. And if you're punished for it in this life, then it's an expiation for you. And if you're not punished for it in this life, then it's up to Allah. Allah will either forgive you or Allah will hold you accountable. And Ubadah says, so we took an allegiance with the Prophet upon that. Uh, and this is in multiple chapters. Bab kayfa yubay'u Imam al-Nas, wufud al-Ansar, bay'at al-Ridwan, ghazwati Badr. I mean, there are like 20 chapters in the Bukhari that this shows up. And the same hadith gets repeated over and over and over again as the moral foundation of Islam as given from the Prophet to these companions. And in another narration, he said, radiallahu anhu, bayana Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ala sam'i wa ta'a fil yusri wal usri wal manshati wal makrahi wa an la nunazi al amra ahlahu he said, we pledge to the Messenger of Allah وسلم, to hear and obey in times of ease and in times of hardship, when we felt energetic and when we were tired, and that we would not contend or we would not disobey whoever we were entrusted to, and uh, we would stand firm upon the truth, and we would not fear the blame of the blamers. We would do what was required from the truth, and we would not fear the blame of the blamers. All right? So this is sort of a, a foundation that he has from the Prophet Now, move over to Medina. When people from Mecca start to migrate and escape persecution and make their way to Medina, Ubadah is one of the main people who's in charge of setting up shelters. So I want you to think about this, that as the news of the Hijrah is coming forward, that you're gonna have all these people that are going to come from Mecca and settle this very fragile city of Yathrib, which is going to be Medina, then you started to have a situation where you needed like a temporary holding place. So Ubadah actually goes and sets up all these shelters along with some group of the companions to host them as they make their way to Medina in the first place. And then he starts to participate in facilitating the hijrah of the Prophet ﷺ to Medina as well. The Prophet ﷺ also entrusted Ubadah with being the one to negotiate the truces with the Jewish tribes in Medina. 
So Ubadah was the narrator of those truces and those treaties that were then taken with the Jewish tribes that existed in Medina because the Prophet entrusted him of all people to negotiate those tribes. The Prophet also pointed him as a zakah collector. And he said, I remember the Prophet told me, he said, Ya Ubadah ittaqillah, O Ubadah, fear Allah with regards to this wealth. This is the charity of people. And he said, do not use any of it for your personal needs. And remember, if you take any dirham, any part of this charity, that it will testify against you on the Day of Judgment. And Ubadah anhu, he, he said that I began to tremble when I heard that from the Prophet And I never wanted to be appointed after that as a leader over any two people or responsible for the wealth of anybody. Meaning I wished from that hadith, this shows you his level of piety. I wished the Prophet would never appoint me for anything and that I'd never be in charge of any two people and that I'd never have to take care of money. Which is why you find that Allah kept putting him in that place. Every time Ubadah in his life does not want to be in a position, it gets forced on him because he's a man of integrity and leadership and honor. His nobility is so prominent that people are like, no, it's you, it's you, it's you. And he constantly tries to push away these positions and these roles and the people constantly uh, thrust him towards it. Uh, one of the things that, you know, one of the, the beautiful ways that he's written about, uh, you know, in the seer, they say that in, when it was in times of peace, Ubadah was the most patient of teachers. He used to go and he used to teach Ahl Sufa the Quran. So you had all these people that were homeless, temporarily homeless. Some people brought them water, some people brought them food. Ubadah would go around the masjid and he'd sit with them and he'd teach them the Quran. He was the most patient of teachers. He was the most wise when it came to negotiating uh, truces. At night, he was an ascetic like no other, like he was a worshiper, he was a abid. He used to cry, he used to devote himself at night. And in battle, he was a lion that you did not want to be anywhere near. So he had this combination of, of qualities that was very rare uh, to find in anybody. And of course, becomes a rare quality in general to find. And as we said, he's one of the hufath. Now, I want you to think about this, that you know, as the Qur'an is coming down, obviously some people are memorizing here, some people are memorizing there, and over time, people are becoming hufath, right? But the Qur'an is being revealed throughout this period of 23 years. Ubadah is one of those people who immediately memorizes anything that comes to the Prophet and who dedicates that uh, to his memory. And so there were five Hufad from the, from the Ansar, five Hufad from the Ansar, people who memorized the Quran from the Ansar, that were most prominent. So these are the five, okay? It's Ubadat ibn Samit, it is Mu'adh ibn Jabal, it is Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, it is Abu Darda' said Mu'adh, Ubadah, Abi Ayyub, uh, Abu Darda', I'm missing one. Ah, Ubay ibn Ka'b. Ubay ibn Ka'b. So again, five people who memorized the Qur'an from the Ansar and were sort of the authorities of the Qur'an from the Ansar. Okay, so I said it was Ubadat ibn Samit, Mu'adh ibn Jabal, Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, Abu Darda, and Ubay ibn Ka'b. So these are the five who jama'u al-Qur'an, that collected the Qur'an in the time of the Prophet from the Ansar and sort of were the teachers of all of the Qur'an teachers 
amongst them. So that's his story, right? He's a worshiper, he's a warrior in battle, he's a negotiator, he's a leader. Uh, and when the Prophet passes away, he becomes a judge under Abu Bakr as-Siddiq a soldier, a military leader, constantly participates in battle after battle and establishes cities. They also said that Ubadah had a unique way of architecture. He could build things. So many of the famous masjids that were left behind were actually planned by Ubadah So they used to go back to him when it came to the construction of those masajid. Now, as we said, he married Umm Haram after the Battle of Uhud, right? After the Battle of Uhud. And she praised him for the way that he would treat her son uh, that, that, that was from a previous marriage. So she praised his character, she praised his akhlaq, she praised his qualities and his morals. And of course, that's also something, the testimony of the wife towards this husband, Ubadah So he has a lot of beautiful traits but I really, I rushed through the seerah part to get to, you know, some of the, 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 the roles that he plays then after the Prophet Sallallahu passes away. And you might have noticed that the title of this lecture is A Man by a Thousand Men. A Man Who Was Worth a Thousand Men. And that title was given to him by Umar bin Khattab radiallahu ta'ala Now, you know, you remember when we spoke about Umar radiallahu anhu, and Umar radiallahu anhu is a man who is very difficult to impress. He is not easily impressed. If Umar bin Khattab is impressed by you, that means that you have something exceptional about you. He's not easily impressed by people. And so when Umar praises someone, you know, people really took that seriously. And the praise that he gave of Ubadah, was during his Khilafah, there was a request for some reinforcements for some of the battles against the Romans. And Umar bin Khattab sent Ubadah and he said, listen, I'm sending with you a man. He gave Ubadah a note. He said, give this to the general. He said, look, this is a man, bi alfi rajul. This man that's giving you the note, Ubadah ibn Samat, he's worth a thousand men. I'm sending him with you and victory will always come on this man's hand. And that's exactly what happened. Ubadah radiallahu ta'ala anhu goes forth and victory would come on his hand over and over and over again. He comes back from a battle, he sets up shop, once again, a judge in the community, a hakim, someone who's very wise, a teacher of Qur'an, and was consulting in some of the most pivotal moments in Islam. Then, Umar ibn Khattab anhu has sent a letter by the Amir of Asham. Uh, so so the, the uh, uh, What's the best word here? The general who was in charge of, of, of Asham at the time, Greater Syria, and that was Muawiyah So Muawiyah sends a letter to Umar ibn Khattab and says, listen, you know, a lot of people have become Muslim in a very short time. Now here's a question that's very important to answer. Did the Muslims used to force people to convert to Islam? No. It's actually one of the prominent features of these battles is there was no forced conversion. So like the Persian Empire was defeated by the Muslims and Muslims remained a minority there for a very, very long time. No forced conversions. But the, you know, the comparison of Islam to these other systems and empires and manifestations of religion warped with all sorts of things. And of course, the incentive to become Muslim, living under Muslim rule, all that you know, put together 
people were becoming Muslim in rapid numbers, right? Large groups of people were becoming Muslim. And so Muawiyah says, look, we're, you know, we're in the midst of the Roman Empire. All these people are converting to Islam. And there aren't many companions here. There aren't many Sahaba here. And the point that he was making is, he said, these people need teachers. They need people to teach them the Qur'an. They need people to teach them halal and haram. They need people to teach them the religion. They need the source. They're fresh in Islam. They need the source. And of course, the Sahaba didn't want to leave Medina. They loved Medina. Okay, generally speaking, you want to set up shop in Medina. Understandably so. So Umar ibn Khattab anhu responds and he says, okay, fine, I'm going to send you someone who's well-versed in the Qur'an. So he calls for a gathering of five people. Who were these five? The five prominent Ansar who knew the Qur'an. He calls Ubadah, Abu Ayyub, Mu'adh, Ubay ibn Ka'ab, and Abu Darda. And he says, listen, the people of Asham, Greater Syria, they're asking for someone to teach them the Qur'an. They're asking for one of the companions who's especially you know, grounded in the Qur'an, that can teach us the Qur'an, teach them the rulings, teach them jurisprudence. And I need some, I need some of you to go do that. So he said to them, Umar anhu said, I need amongst you five, I need you to pick three of you to go. And basically, you know, Greater Syria, of course, Asham means Palestine, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria in, in current day, right? When we say Asham, we mean that whole area, you know? So I need to send three of you there, and you can sort of map out amongst yourselves who's going to teach what region. But choose amongst yourselves, and if you have to, cast lots. But just, I need three of you to go to Asham because you have a bunch of people embracing Islam there. So they said to Umar anhu, uh, they said, there's no need for you to, you know, to, to do any sort of selection process. I know saying Hajj lottery is too soon right now. I don't want to do that to like hurt people's feelings, right? Like we don't have to do any of that stuff. There's no draw here. We'll figure it out amongst ourselves. They said it's very easy. They said, as for Abu Ayyub al-Ansari, he's an old man. He's very elderly. It doesn't make sense to send him out to a sham right now in the midst of all of this. So Abu Ayyub anhu can stay in Medina. And of course, Abu Ayyub was the host of the Prophet in Medina. Probably the person we'll talk about when we resume in August, inshallah ta'ala, the first Sahabi we'll cover. Beautiful man, elderly man. And they said, you can exclude him. They said, as for Ubay ibn Ka'b, Ubay is sick. Ubay was very ill at the time. He came down with some sort of, of disease. They didn't even know if he was going to make it. So they said, we don't want to send him there. And then he dies on the way. It's not fair to him and it's not going to achieve the purpose. So basically, the other three, Ubadah, Mu'adh, and Abu Darda, they said, we will go. So Umar anhu sent the three of them to take Asham, to teach the people of Asham. Ubadah went to Palestine with his wife, Um Haram. Okay, radiallahu anha. So Ubadah and his wife, Um Haram, go and they settle in Palestine, in Palestine. And Ubadah anhu is teaching the people in Palestine. The people of Palestine are sending uh, to Umar ibn Khattab glowing reviews. Remember, Umar anhu was a tough uh, assessor of leaders, amirs. So Umar anhu would go directly to the people and ask them, are your amirs treating you okay? Are you being dealt with justly? Are people teaching you right? Is there any confusion? What are they doing? And so they loved Ubadah anhu. And so there was a dilemma with Ubadah, which was that he was a man of battle, but he's also a man who teaches. And sometimes those two things 
you know, come into, uh, you know, come into play where you have to make one, one choice. You have to choose one over the other. So sometimes they come into conflict. Do we send them out in battle or do we let them keep teaching the people? And eventually, subhanAllah, Ubadah became sort of a, 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 uh, a school of hifd by himself. He produced all sorts of hifad in Palestine. People memorized the Quran in Palestine. I was thinking about this, subhanAllah. Imagine how many people are hifad in Palestine because of Ubadah. Like how many people he taught that then taught people, that then taught people. How many you know, places that were established because essentially you know, hifd becomes a culture, right? How many places that were established as places where people learn the Qur'an in Palestine that then went on to teach people, that then went on to teach people. And Ubadah is credited as the first person who really created that culture in Palestine where people learned the Qur'an from him and then taught the Qur'an afterwards. And of course when you memorize the Qur'an and you have a sanad, you have a chain, many of the people of Palestine will have a chain that goes back to Ubadah to the Prophet So an amazing accomplishment in and of itself. But Ubadah was also a man of strong opinion. And he gets into a dispute with the, with the governor, okay, who's Muawiyah. So Ubadah and Muawiyah get into an argument, a dispute. And Ubadah says to Muawiyah after that dispute, he says, Listen, I'm not going to live in a place with you. I'm done with you. It got intense. People had these types of arguments. They're human beings. He said, I'm done with you. I'm going back to Medina. So he gets into an argument with Muawiyah, says, you and I, we, we can't live in the same place together. I'm going back to Medina. Umar anhu suddenly sees Ubadah pop up in Medina. Now again, if you know Umar anhu and the way he did, like, what? Didn't I send you over there? What are you doing over here? You know, like that's... Umar was a man of great justice, but he was also a man of order, structure, not, not leaving the community vulnerable. What's going to happen? He could have become very severe. But instead, he sees him and he says, what happened? Why are you here? Why are you back in Medina? You're supposed to be in Asham, where I sent you. And he told him that Muawiyah and I had an argument, and I told Muawiyah, you and I can't live in the same place. I've got to go. You stay here, I've got to go. So Umar anhu said to him, Irujir, go back to your place. But then listen to what he says, it's so beautiful. He says, May Allah disgrace a land that doesn't have a person like you, you or a person like you. Like, what good is there in a land? So powerful, subhanAllah, it's hard to translate. What good is a place that doesn't have a person like you? are those that are like you. And that shows you the way this, the Sahaba, the companions understood the blessing that comes to a place, when righteous people are present. And how a place becomes vulnerable when they don't have righteous people amongst them. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make us amongst the righteous. Allahumma ameen. Righteous people become sources of blessing in the land. Righteous people become sources of answered du'as, answered supplications. Righteous people are a means of protection in the land. So Umar anhu said, what, what good is there in a place that you are not in? Or someone that is like you? He told him, go back. And he said, and I will not appoint any emir over you. And this is the only person he ever does this for, by the way. He said, as for you, no one's in charge of you. You're in charge of yourself. 
Anta amirun ala nafsik. You're your own man, you're in charge of yourself. This is not like Umar radiallahu anhu, right? To say, you don't have to respond to anybody. You're good. You do your thing. You know, I trust you, but I need you over there. And he even sends a letter to Muawiyah radiallahu anhu and says, I'm sending Ubadah back and I heard about your dispute. Listen, huwa amiru nafsihi. He's an amir of himself, leave him alone. He makes his own decisions. He's not accountable to you. He's accountable to Allah. He's accountable to himself. Leave the man alone. I need him there, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. So he goes back and the happy ending is that him and Muawiyah actually win a lot of battles together after this, uh, after this dispute that they had. He plays a major role then in the expansion of Islam. Remember, this is where it's getting heated between the Roman Empire and the Muslims, the Byzantines and the Muslims. So one of the most important expeditions here, or one of the most important battles, is the battle for Egypt, for Masr. Now, we all know that Amr ibn As is the man who led the overall right. Uh, battle for Egypt against the Roman Empire. But of his main generals was Ubadah ibn Samat radiallahu ta'ala So Ubadah is one of the main people that is engaged in this battle with the Roman Empire, the Byzantines at the time, for Egypt. And this is where you find one of the most epic conversations in the history of Islam. Because it shows you the way that people's hearts and minds were changed through Islam. This was not a military force. This was a spiritual force. This was very different. Their concepts were shifted. Things changed. So the Muslims um, laid siege to the Babylon fortress in the year 641. And the ruler, the last Cyprus, the last Cyrus at the time of Egypt, the last Cyrus was a man by the name of Al-Muqawqis. Now Al-Muqawqis literally translates to the Caucasian. The Roman ruler of Egypt, okay, Al-Muqawqis, the Caucasian Roman ruler of Egypt, the last Cyrus of Egypt. He's also the patriarch, so he's the head of the church. Simultaneously, the political ruler, the general over Egypt under the Roman Empire, right? And this is really interesting because before a battle takes place, you got the negotiations, right? Diplomacy first. So Al-Muqawqis is in his fortress, he's really holed up and he comes out to meet the Muslims. And when he comes out, he sees Ubadah radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Ubadah was black. This doesn't make sense to him. So, you know, in one narration he even says, can you go find, who's actually, you know, who's really in charge? Like, go talk to whoever's in charge and tell them I want to talk to him. Because that's their mindset. Right? You're, you know, you can't be a leader. But when he comes forward, Al-Muqawqis makes a racist remark against Ubadah. I mean, think about the position Ubadah has, radiallahu anhu, amongst the Muslims at this point. It's, subhanAllah, it's very, it's ironic that the first Muslim commander, right, was Usama ibn Zayd, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, against the Romans. Usama, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, was described as also being exceedingly black. So you have an empire that's got all of its Roman Empire stuff. And now you have Ubadah ibn Samad. So Ubadah comes forward, and Al-Muqawqis says, Ib'idu anni al-aswad, Take this black man away from me and put someone else forward to talk to me. I'm not even gonna talk to him. I mean, talk about the disrespect, right? Like he didn't even talk to him. 
He talked to everybody else, to the Muslims that were there, behind Ubadah, who's the leader. And he said, take, the, take this black man away and go find someone else to talk to me. This is the head of the church. This is the head of the, this political power, right? Like think about the, the difference in moral values here between the two. And Ubadah radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he's not moving. And they responded to him. They said, they said, said, this man that you just degraded is the best of us. This is what they valued, his opinion, his knowledge. And he is our leader and he is the best of us. We don't say anything except what he says. We always return back to him. Like it's his word that dominates all of our word. So even if we were to speak, we're going to confirm everything with him because this is our leader. So a complete vote of confidence, not like, you know, we have to use wisdom here. He doesn't want to talk to our leader because our leader's black. Let's go find one of the Sahaba who's whiter complexion to come talk to him and talk. No, like this is not negotiable for us. This is our leader, and you have a problem, not us. Al-Muqawqis still does not address Ubadat ibn Samad directly. He's still talking to them. And he says, How could you allow for yourselves to let this black man be the best of you? How could you let him be the best of you? And he says, He should be the least of you. He's still degrading him. Right in front of him. Says, this man should be the least of you, he should not be the best of you. And they responded and they said, once again, he is the best of us, he is our leader, he is our, uh, he is our commander. And they said, Like this is just so beautiful, like concepts. They said, and by the way, black and white to us are the same. We're teaching him about Islam. Like, I know you've been governing for all this time and this is how you've set up hierarchies, but to us, black and white are the same. No one is superior except by taqwa, except by their piety. That's how you gain uh, prominence and position amongst us Muslims, is through piety. So Al-Muqawqis is like, who are these people? I don't understand you because this is, not, <laughs> this is not a worldview that I've dealt with. Like the Persians were just as backwards as the Romans, so it's like, what are we doing here? So Al-Muqawqis, finally, after arguing with them, he says to Ubadah, Ubadah is just standing there, he says to Ubadah, he says, come forth, you know, qaddim ya aswad, he still calls him a black one, come forth, a black man, he says, but speak lowly because you scare me, and I don't want you to speak harshly because then you're really going to scare me, like, so keep your voice down, don't speak harshly towards me, keep a little bit of a distance, but say what you got to say, like, fine, these people don't want to talk to me, I'll, fine, you're their leader, I'll talk to you. And Ubadah he goes forth and he smiles and he says, listen, if you're scared of me, my blackness, he says, There are a thousand black men behind me. I'm not the only black one here. I want you to know there are a thousand black men behind me. Every one of them is black as me and they'll scare you just as much as I do. So he's using his silliness to his advantage, right? Like, fine, you, you got a problem with us? I'm telling you, this army of a few thousand people back here, there are a thousand black men here. And they're going to scare you too, so you better be afraid. I suggest you back down then. And then 
Al-Muqawqis, not amused obviously, and he says to him, what do you want? <laughs> like, I, I'm not even going to engage you on this stuff, what do you want? And subhanAllah, he responds and he says, you may be afraid of me, but he said, wallahi, my youth is gone and I'm old, as you can see. Ubad is an elderly man at this point, he's in his 60s. He says, but I would not be afraid of a hundred of your best soldiers. I don't fear you. I don't fear even a hundred of your best men. And if they all wanted to face me at once, I would take all a hundred of them at once. And he said, and my companions, ashabi, so what? My companions back there, my army, they all have the same courage that I'm saying to you. And he said, we are not fighting you for worldly gain or for wealth. None of us cares to have a single dirham from this world, a single gold coin of this world, except to ward off hunger and to clothe ourselves with a single garment. And anything beyond that is extra. And we're content with what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to us. Our pleasure is the pleasure of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So like, by the way, you can't bribe us. If you're thinking, let me try to bribe you, bring you in, give you something. That's not going to work either. And subhanAllah al-Muqawqis, he says to the people around him, he says, هَلْ سَمِعْتُمْ مِثْلَ كَلَامَ هَذِي قَتْ Have you ever heard people talk like this? Have you heard what he said? He said, لَقَدْ هِبْتُ مَنْظَرَ وَإِنَّ قَوْلَهُ لَأَهْيَبُ عِنْدِي مِنْ مَنْظَرِهِ He said, I was afraid of his look. I was afraid of his appearance. But he says, قَوْلَهُ لَأَهْيَبُ عِنْدِي مِنْ مَنْظِرِهِ مِنْ مَنْظَرِهِ That looking, that what he has said is alarming me much more than his appearance. Because these are people that are different from us. Their values are different from us. Their conviction is different from us. Their courage is different from us. And indeed, subhanAllah, Ubad radiallahu ta'ala anhu led that battle and uh, led that army to victory, a very swift victory, in fact, against Al-Muqawqis, the last Cyrus of Egypt uh, in that time, and went on to develop Egypt uh, in, in very beautiful ways. How many of you are Muslim, by the way? How many Egyptians we have in here? It's okay, raise your hands. I'm going to ask you a question, a trivia question. I know some of you are Muslim and you're not raising your hand. Like, I'm going to say something bad, all right? All right. What is the first capital of Egypt? First capital city of Egypt. I know some of you are not going to like my answer. You're going to come argue with me afterwards anyway, because I know how it goes. I'll say Alexandria. Anyone know what it is? Fustat. MashaAllah. All right, you win. Zakallah khair. The first capital of Egypt is actually Fustat. And Ubad uh, was the first one to develop that city and he also built the first masjid in Masr which happens to now be known as Masjid Amr ibn As. So he's actually the one who built the first masjid in Masr, the first masjid in Egypt which is known as Masjid Amr ibn As uh, anhu, which is of course a very famous masjid in Egypt. So Ubada anhu, this is another one of his contributions, right? Developing essentially much of the city of Egypt and there are other masajid that they say in Asham uh, that are built by Ubadah but generally speaking he was known to be a person who could be an architect for Masajid and would build the Masajid in the places that he would go. After Egypt comes Cyprus. Last week we spoke about what happened in Cyprus 
when uh, Ubadah radiallahu anhu was leading the naval expedition, the first naval expedition in Islam against what was the Roman base in Cyprus. And subhanAllah, Umm Haram radiallahu ta'ala anha, would, his wife would die as soon as they got off of the ship, as was promised by the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam that she would be amongst that group and she was accepted as a shahida over there in Cyprus. And Ubadah actually still led the campaign. So there were two campaigns against the Roman base in Cyprus. Ubadah despite losing his wife was still entrusted with going forth and leading those two campaigns against the Romans in Cyprus. And then he retired to Palestine. He retired to Palestine once again. So SubhanAllah, as we get to sort of the end of him, uh, his life in this regard. Um, he didn't live much longer after his wife passed away. Died uh, only two or three years after Umm Haram radiallahu ta'ala anha passed away and he did not fight in any expeditions anymore after the Battle of Cyprus. Uh, Ubadah radiallahu ta'ala anhu stays in Palestine, in Palestine, uh, continues to teach the people the Qur'an, continues to narrate some of the ahadith of the Prophet ﷺ. He's a narrator of over a hundred of the ahadith of the Prophet ﷺ, the narrations. And he also starts to smell some of the fitna, some of the dissension, the trials and tribulations that would lead to the assassination of Uthman anhu. This is now in the Khilaf of Uthman and he's one of the first people to recognize what's happening, but he doesn't live to actually see it come to fruition. But remember that you know, fitna on the inside is almost always instigated from the outside. So this undermining of Uthman anhu, this, the, the slander of Uthman anhu, these things, he starts to hear some of that in Palestine, he's crushing it, and he's very wary of it, but he's not going to live to actually see the fitna uh, come to reality in his life. But there are narrations of him stopping some of the young men that are starting to pass on some of the stuff about Uthman. Like, what are you talking about? What are you talking about? So he starts to hear some of these overzealous youth that are saying very nasty things about Uthman and is correcting some of those things very early on. And he's wary of it and he's telling Uthman what he's hearing in Palestine at the time. But then, subhanAllah, uh, we find his death. And, and I'd never heard this narration uh, personally of his death until, until this time around when I was preparing for it. He's in Palestine and he does something very beautiful at the time of his death. Uh, he became sick so he would die a natural death. Ubadah radiallahu ta'ala anhu, it's narrated, لَمَّا حَضْرَتْ عُبَادَةْ الْوَفَاءِ When Ubadah radiallahu ta'ala anhu came to the time of death, he said to, uh, he said to his family, أَخْرِجُوا فِرَاشِ إِلَى الصَّحْبِ take my body out, take me out, roll me out basically in front of my house, to the courtyard of my house. And he said, uh, go ahead and call. I want you to call every single person that I ever interacted with. A subject, a servant, a soldier, a family member, a neighbor, anybody. Please call them forward. Whoever used to enter upon me, whoever I used to interact with, please call them over to the house. So they all came around him and their leader is about to die. And I want you to think about this. Ubadah is laying down and he's talking and everyone is gathered around him to hear what he has to say outside of his home. And he says, In 
لَأَرَاهُ آخِرَ يَوْمٍ يَأْتِي عَلَيَّ مِنَ الدُّنْيَا وَأَوَّلَ لَيْلَةٍ مِنَ الْآخِرَةِ He said, this day of mine, I see it to be the last day of my life in this world and the first night of my night in the hereafter. He says, this is the last day I'm going to live in this earth and I think it's the first night that I'm going to live in the hereafter and encounter the stages of the hereafter. And he says to everyone, وَإِنِّي لَا أَدْرِي لَعَلَّهُ قَدْ فَرَطَ مِنِّي بِيَدِي أَوْ بِلِسَانِي شَيْءٍ وَهُوَ الَّذِي نَفْسُ عُبَادَةَ بِيَدِهِ الْقِصَاصُ يَوْمِ الْقِيَامَةِ فَمَا خَرَجَ عَلَىٰ أَحَدِكُمْ شَيْءٌ مِنْ نَفْسِهِ إِلَّا اقْتَصَّ مِنِّي قَبْلَ أَنْ يَخْرُجَ نَفْسِهِ He said, listen, I might have said something to you. My hand or my tongue might have slipped in regards to one of you in this world. I might have said something hurtful. I might have done something hurtful to one of you. I don't know who it is, but if I have done so, Allah is going to take your, your justice, your right on the day of judgment from me. So whoever has anything to say, anyone that I harmed with my tongue or with my hand or did something wrong to, please bring it forward to me and take your payback now before my soul leaves this world. SubhanAllah, this is the concern of this man, despite all that he had done, which shows you the piety of these people. And not a single person comes forward. They all instead start to say to him words of praise. بَلْ كُنْتَ وَالِدًا وَكُنْتَ مُؤَدِّبًا You were like a father, you were a mentor, you were, you were the best of us. We have nothing to say. And they said about this, you know, كُنْتَ وَالِدًا وَكُنْتَ مُؤَدِّبًا وَمَا قَالَ لِخَادِمٍ سُوءًا قَتْ And you never said to anyone, any servant or anyone, a bad word. Like we never heard anything from your mouth that could be harmful. Think about that, by the way. If you're going to meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even if you have this pristine biography of accomplishment after accomplishment after accomplishment, the concern that he has is, have I slipped? Did I say something to one of you? Did I hurt you? I want you to tell me. And no one has anything to say. So Ubadah radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he says, أَغَفَرْتُمْ لِي مَا كَانَ مِنْ ذَلِكَ So you forgive me for everything? All of you forgive me for everything? No one has anything to say? They said, nothing. قَالَ اللَّهُمَّ الشَّهْدِ He said, oh Allah, bear witness. And Ubadah radiallahu anhu would die that day. Oh Allah, bear witness that not a single person had one complaint against me. May Allah make that our state as well. Not a single person could claim that I hurt them. That's a beautiful thing to aspire to. You might not be able to aspire to some of the other stuff Ubadah accomplished, but can you aspire to that, that when I die, not a single person could say that you harmed me with your tongue or you harmed me with your hand in any way. And there's one more hadith, and subhanAllah, the last hadith of Ubadah is narrated on his deathbed, which is, pro which is powerful in and of itself, of the over 100 ahadith, the last hadith that would come from him would come on the day of his death. It's narrated by As-Sunabihi. As-Sunabihi, radiallahu anhu, uh, for the students of, of hadith, there are three Sunabihis. There's one companion, one maybe companion, and one tabi'i. So this is a companion of the Prophet ﷺ and a companion of Ubadah radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Abdurrahman ibn Usayla, As-Sunabihi, radiallahu anhu. He said, this is the last narration of Ubadah. He said, I entered upon Ubadah and he was just about to die. Like he was just about to die. So he said, I started to cry. I started to cry. 
Now, you would think that the one who's in distress is the one who's dying, not the one who's visiting the one who's dying, right? He said, I started to cry. So he said, Ubadah said back to me, Mahlan, lima tabki? Why are you crying? Stop crying. قَالَ فَوَاللَّهِ لَا إِنَ اسْتُشْهِدْتُ لَا أَشْهَدَنَّ لَكَ وَلَا إِنْ شُفِعْتُ لَا أَشْفَعَنَّ لَكَ وَلَا إِنْ اسْتَطَعْتُ لَا أَنْفَعَنَّ He said, listen, if, I'm, if I die as a shaheed, if I'm a martyr, then I will bear witness for you. I'll inter- then, then I will uh, intercede for you. And if I can intercede, if Allah places me in the position of an intercessor on the Day of Judgment, I'll intercede for you. This is a student, this is his companion. And he said, I will try to benefit you in any way, meaning, you know, this isn't the end of our relationship, don't worry. I'll see you on the Day of Judgment. I'll see you on the other side, and if I'm in a good place, then I will be there for you. But then, he says to him, and he says, Wallahi, مَا مِنْ حَدِيثٍ سَمِعْتُهُ مِنْ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ لَكُمْ فِيهِ خَيْرٍ إِلَّا حَدَّثْتُكُمُوهُ إِلَّا حَدِيثٍ وَاحِدًا He said to him, and listen to me, saying to us, he said, every hadith I learned from the Prophet that would be of benefit to you, I shared with you. I shared everything I heard from the Prophet with you. He said, but there is one more hadith I want to share with you. He said, وَسَوْفَ أُحَدِّثُكُمُوهُ الْيَوْمَ وَقَدْ أُحِيطَ بِنَفْسِي He said, I'm going to share this with you today and I'm near my death, my soul is about to leave my body. He said, I heard the Prophet say, سَمِعْتُ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم يَقُولُ مَنْ شَهِدَ أَنْ لَا إِلَهِ إِلَّا اللَّهِ وَأَنَّ مُحَمَّدًا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ حَرَّمَ اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ النَّارِ I heard the Prophet say, Whoever bears witness that there is no God but Allah and that Muhammad is the Messenger of Allah, Allah will forbid the fire from that person. Allah has forbidden the fire from that person. It's a beautiful hadith. It's the last hadith he narrated. He narrated it moments before he died. He's not the only narrator of this hadith, by the way. Mu'adh radiallahu anhu also narrated it, but way late when he was about to die. Why? Because he didn't want people to become complacent. You might hear the hadith and be like, all right, we're good then. What else do we have to do? We just say shahada. But he doesn't want you to become complacent. You've got to work. La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah is the key of all goodness and you've got the teeth of the key, right? You've got to work. But this hadith is so hopeful, so beautiful. So he said, I heard the Prophet say that whoever says this shahada, Allah will not punish that person. Haram Allahu alayhi nar. And he passed away moments after that, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Uh, he passed away actually in Palestine, in Palestine. I don't know if the brothers have the picture, if you can put it up. Uh, is it showing or not showing? It's showing. Uh, this is the grave of Ubadah radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Guess where it's at? Anyone recognize it? Babur Rahma next to Masjid al-Aqsa. So the grave of Ubadah radiallahu anhu is actually next to, it's in the cemetery right next to Masjid al-Aqsa, uh, the Babur Rahma uh, cemetery. Uh, lay subhanAllah amongst many companions, amongst many tabi'een, amongst many great men and women uh, before and after and of course is also under occupation and has been desecrated before. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala liberate that land, Allahumma ameen. But it is a, a beautiful place, uh, I've never been to it, uh, never been allowed to go but I know some of the people who do get to go on these trips to Al-Aqsa, inshaAllah ta'ala you go to Bab al-Rahmah, if you go to the cemetery you find this grave of Ubadah radiallahu ta'ala anhu 
many of the ahadith that he narrated live with us today. His legacy lives with us today. And his descendants in Palestine still live, by the way. So they're actually a famous uh, family, Ailat uh, Nusayba, which is the, the descendants of Ubad ibn Samad. So they still live there until this day. So the descendants settled under Ubadah, and till today, it's a well-known family that has existed there for 1,400 years with a powerful legacy of Ubadah radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Uh, may Allah be pleased with him, and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala join us with him and with the companions of the Prophet sallallahu the family of the Prophet sallallahu and with the Prophets and the righteous ones and the highest level of Jannah to the Firdaus. Allahumma ameen. Jazakumullah khayran. Inshallah ta'ala. Next week we'll talk about al-bara' ibn Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and then we'll break for uh, the hijjah inshallah, but I'll go ahead and I'll take some questions for now. Yes. They practice the they practice the whole Quran um, during Sayyidina I mean Sayyidina Muhammad. How old were all they when they when they like practiced the whole thing? Okay. How old were the, the Hafaz? Most of the Hafaz were, were actually young people. Most of them were young people. And of course, by the time the Prophet passed away, there were hundreds of people that memorized the whole Quran. But there were people that were sort of recognized as the main memorizers. But most of them were young people. May Allah make you a Hafiz of Quran. Say, Ameen. There you go. Are you a Hafiz yet? You're getting there, inshallah, right? You have the intention? You want to? Like tomorrow? All right, inshallah. Any sisters? Yeah. Say that one more time. Why was it called the Pledge of Women? So they called at, at that time in the Arabic terminology when they said Bay'atun Nisa because the women were not typically fighting in battle. So if it wasn't a pledge that required a military component, then they called it Bay'atun Nisa because it wasn't a military pledge. But if it was a, it was a pledge that everyone could take. But if it was a military pledge, then it was understood that the men were going to put their lives on the line for that pledge. So it was Arabic terminology at the time. Yeah. Any other questions? You have a question? No? All right. Questions? Salaam alaikum. Question here. Um, so during war negotiations with the Byzantines and I guess other nations or uh, uh, rivals that had different languages, um, what was the logistics around, around the language barriers? The language barrier? So what were the logistics around the language barrier? It's a good question. Uh, it's usually not spelled out. Obviously, translators were common. But especially in those regions, it was common for them to, to speak uh, some of the same languages. Um, so the assumption that's made in most of these is a direct conversation. But of course, translators would be present at the time as well. Good question, though. Something to look into, inshallah. Any other questions? Yes, sir. Uh, what were the locations of the, of the other places of the two Hafiz taught? What were the other? What were the locations that the Oh, where the other two companions went? Good question. So they went to Hems and Damascus. Hems, famous city in Syria, and Damascus, which was a city, which was a center. And then you had uh, Palestine, Jerusalem in particular. Thank you. Any sisters? 
No? Any brothers? Last question? All right, so I'll see you all next week, inshallah. It'll be the last one. We'll talk about Al-Bara' ibn Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Jazakumullah khairan. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.